All right, good morning, everybody. We're going to talk today about theological influences, particularly personal theological influences of the faculty here at RTSDC. But before we do, let's go ahead and start with our opening. Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to prepare pastors and other church leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president and associate professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington. And I'm joined by Dr. Peter Lee, associate professor of Old Testament and dean of students here at RTS. Hey, Peter. Hey, Scott. I'm also joined by Professor Tommy Keene, professor of New Testament academic dean here at RTS. Hey, Tommy. Great to be here. Dr. Paul Jean is also with us, lecturer in New Testament at RTS and senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church. Hey, Paul. Scott, great to be here. Great hey, to Paul, have you. Hey, Paul, it's great to see you. <laughs> I miss you too, Tommy. <laughs> You've been waiting all week to do that, haven't you? It's kind of an awkward pause here as Paul and Tommy just chat in the midst you know it's one of those awkward conversations okay and also joined by dr grace sutanto professor of systematic theology and our man in jakarta for the for the current time about to start teaching his first class at rts washington today welcome grace great to have you it's god privileged to be here as always so we want to talk a little bit today about professors and pastors and christians who influenced each one of us in the way that we do our own work as professors pursuing this vocation as, um, as theological educators. We've all been shaped by people who taught us, and it's in, been in part just watching people, how they live their lives and their personalities and how they interact with their students and with their friends and their family in some cases, because some of these relationships were quite personal that we were able to have. But I know that all of us are influenced by these professors who shaped us early on in our lives when we were trying to go through this fog of what does it mean to work in a seminary? What does it mean to be a biblical scholar or to be an academic? You know, I, I personally remember the first summer, this is the summer of 2000, that my wife and I had moved down to Orlando, Florida, we had just been married two weeks before, and we had decided on some advice of others that we needed to take that summer to really um, you know, honeymoon in Orlando and not really get deeply connected into the seminary life yet, just for at least a couple of weeks or maybe a month, and just sort of get used to being married. And I remember going down to the beach at New Smyrna, and uh, back in those days, I think you can still do this today, you could pull your car onto the beach and sort of, you know, lay out outside of the back of your, you know, the, the back of your car. And we had this old VW van that we would pull up and, and we'd sit out the back of the car and, you know, and enjoy the sun and, and go surfing and all of that. And I remember pulling up on the beach and about a half hour after we got there, this, this minivan came down the ramp and kind of, you could tell that the, that the driver was trying to figure out which way they wanted to go on the beach and decided the last minute to go left and he curled around in front of us, kind of spraying some sand up into the air. And as I looked through the window, I saw the joyful face of Dr. Mark Futado, 
with all of his kids kind of hanging out the windows with their, with their boogie boards and beach towels and snorkels and um, you know, yelling out his name and, and spending a, a wonderful day together and, and realizing in part, here's a guy who is a deep scholar of Hebrew language and biblical theology, is a phenomenal teacher, his reputation precedes him as a professor, and yet he knows how to take his kids to the beach and have a good time. And I thought, I, I want to be, no matter what I end up doing, I want to reflect that a little bit in my life too. So we want to talk a little bit about that briefly. Who are the people who influenced you guys as you were preparing to follow this grand vocation that the Lord has called you to? Scott, I loved your story. That's awesome. I never had that experience. So I'm just enjoying your story. See, I think the broader reflection I've had, especially in the past three to five years, is actually the purpose of a seminary. Because if the question is, who has really shaped you theologically, that's actually somewhat more straightforward for me. I, I think, you know, for me, one of the main influences I I continue to benefit from is obviously John Frame. My only story of John Frame was I was teaching in RTS Atlanta and, you know, I was just going about my lecture in my usual thoughtless way. And then all of a sudden John Frame walks in and I freeze up and I thought he would just walk in, pop in and pop out. He just stood there for the longest um, minute. And it's like I had forgotten how to speak English and it, it was really bad. <laughs> so like no one knew what was going on. I think so if the question is theologically, you know, there are great people like John Frame, um, Van Til, whom I never knew personally, but has really shaped me theologically. But as far as like in terms of influence on the way I do ministry, you know, if I had to be completely candid about it, I don't think I have really seen models, at least in the seminary context, that I would want to imitate. And But I don't mean that as a criticism. Um, you know, this idea, what seminary did not teach me, I think sometimes it can be uncharitable because yeah. seminary is not meant to be all things to all people. So, you know, I would say at least in terms of ministry, I saw many examples that I did not want to copy because while I felt like, for instance, um, uh, a lot of theologians were great in terms of shaping me like to think theologically, it's one of those instances where I always wondered why Reformed people can be sometimes, um, how would you say? Uh, uh, <laughs> so, well, I'll just leave it like that. So. For me, I think the question of who would you say in it? terms of ministry, well, if I said uncharitable, it would sound like a contradiction because no. I'm probably being uncharitable. But, you know, so when I look back at seminary, I'm actually very thankful because I don't look at it in terms of like what seminary did not teach me. I look at it in terms of it taught me what, we, what it was supposed to teach me. And I would say the two, four things might be uh, presuppositionalism, why systematic theology matters. I, I don't even really think I learned that much Bible content. I think I learned more hermeneutics. But I don't think that seminary taught me or shaped my uh, influence on pastoral ministry outside of really believing that there are some flawed um, 
models within the reformed theological system in terms of ministry approach. But um, so in terms of ministry, I, I had a sense of what I did not want to do. But theologically, it was very rich. It's interesting. You this see. is why my vow of silence. <laughs> so, so now Paul's taking a vow of silence. Paul's taking a vow of silence for the past two episodes. Everyone that you need need to know about. He was forced to break it, but he's come out of his ascetic cave. So, and we're glad to have him. I think it's interesting you mentioned that, Paul, because like when I think of pastoral influences, I had a, I had a great seminary experience and very helpful in terms of kind of the uh, the overarching theological influences. But a lot of my pastoral influences came from actual pastors that, that may have been associated with the seminary, but weren't necessarily employed by the seminary. Um, uh, what, I mean, the, when I think back to my own history that one of the chief ones that comes to mind is my youth pastor, uh, David Jones. And I had, I was a kid with tons of questions and he treated those questions with respect. And he was kind of the first influence in my life that did, who didn't just give me a pat answer, you know, believe the Bible, Tommy, and go, go on. But, you know, he, th he threw books at me and asked me follow-up questions and debated with me um, and he eventually went on to, I mean, at the time he had a beard and I didn't, so I thought he was, you know, 60, but uh, it turns out he was only like eight years older than me. He went on to Westminster Seminary and we overlapped there for a year or two and, and got to develop a, a more kind of peer type of friendship. And he's still, uh, you know, to this day, kind of count him as a great pastoral influence, moral influence in my life that, that set a trajectory pastorally and, and personally for me. And then at seminary, um, Adam Bryce, my pastor there, and uh, he really invested in students and, past, and, and had a pastor's round table where he brought us together and we talked about pastoral issues. Uh, and then subsequent to that, partnering with my uh, pastor, Eric Huber, at, at, the, same, at the same church. Uh, and, and that was my first first instance of being a of having that kind of like fruitful partnership like we were together in ministry doing this this thing together and that was incredibly influential just in terms of like ministry isn't about me and it's, it's not my ministry it's something that we do together and that's now affecting the way i interpret the the new testament thinking about peter and paul and james as partners in ministry rather than competitors, I don't think I would have alighted on that without having a fruitful partnership. So some of those, those experiences kind of in the orbit of seminary were very, very helpful to me. So the influences for you guys are more sort of people who are alongside you all while, while you are in the seminary setting, kind of helping shape you and adjust you as you're pursuing your studies. It was the people who came alongside you while you were in seminary. You kind of did part of the spiritual formation aspects of pursuing your call. Is that right? You know, yeah, I, I, we, we encourage students that way here too. Don't just be at seminary. Be be deeply connected in your church and connected with your pastors. Like this is important while you're doing your training. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the seminary is, is serving an, an indispensable function, and as and and we haven't talked about academic. Inf- I haven't talked about academic influences yet, and I had some seriously helpful ones throughout seminary. But it's you know the seminary is as we've talked about before, supporting the church, and so kind of the life influences, pastoral influences for me were that were largely within the the orbit of the local church. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Tommy, like for me, I wonder if it, like our different experiences stemmed in large part from like my growing up in an immigrant church setting. And even during um, my seminary years, I was serving at a uh, Korean church. And if you serve as a youth pastor, basically it's like you run your own church plant. And so you don't really actually receive any guidance. But, you know, when I do look back, there were a few people that were very formative. I mean, I remember this one conversation at Westminster where this pastor, uh, he was like a visiting scholar. We were just sitting down together and he was asking me how my readings were coming along. And um, I said that, well, you know, there's just so much reading. And uh, he said, well, you have a very purist approach where you're trying to read every single page. And then out of the blue, he said, I'm just going to offer you this one advice regarding ministry. He said, if you want to be remotely successful in ministry, you have to be an above average preacher. Paul, can you unpack that a little bit? What do you mean or what did he mean by the importance of preaching versus what organizational ability, exegesis, systematic theology? What do you mean by the importance of preaching as a pastor? Okay, so this uh, individual graduated from a very conservative seminary, and um, he has a very high view of the Word of God, you know, and I would say he's entirely confessional, reformed, and all of the above. But his basic point was that sometimes our good theology can actually make us lazy, maybe inadvertently. And so, for instance, you can sometimes have this approach, and I don't want to be uncharitable or generalize this, but you know, this idea that, okay, the Bible is the word of God, so all we have to do is faithfully exegete it and exposit it and in almost a robotic fashion without realizing that you know people are speaking to people. It's not transferring information brains on a stick. So he was basically saying, you need to become a good speaker. And he says, you need to learn how to speak simply, clearly, uh, not using theological jargon. You need to be able to really enter into uh, the worldviews of people and realize that most of the people in this world do not care about anything we talk about at you know, seminary. And he, he wasn't downplaying theology, but he's basically saying what John Stott has said in his book. You, you, you really have to learn to be uh, a preacher between two worlds. And his advice was great. He said to that end, the only way you're really going to get great, he said two things where you need to preach a lot. Uh, he said there's something about quantity, but he said that even that's not uh, sufficient. You need to get very constructive feedback uh, because it's like uh, learning the wrong golf swing. If you do it a million times, you just become a worse uh, golfer. And so when I look back, getting very practical advice, which uh, seminaries often don't give, which is okay. I just want to highlight this. I think it's okay. I think seminaries are really meant to teach a very few narrow things, right? Uh, were very formative in my um, uh, development as a pastor and theologian. And I think it's important to emphasize that it is not unfaithful to give practical advice. 
And oftentimes those people who, uh, all of us in the Reformed tradition where we're tempted to say, hey, let's just focus on faithfulness to the word of God. We are actually working on these practical things without us even knowing it. Maybe we're not conscious of it. We're working on how to communicate well. We're working on how to uh, preach to the heart. We're working on how to address contemporary issues in a way that is faithful to the word of God. These are practical realities that I think a good preacher does. So even if they're telling people, don't worry about practical things, I do think that we are going to be working on those things. So it's good and faithful to emphasize these practical realities. Yeah, Westminster Assembly talks about the due use of ordinary means. And I know that most people usually think of translation, you know, and maybe historical knowledge when they're talking about that. And I remember at seminary professors, even PT professors using that kind of phrase to talk about the idea of speaking clearly, like putting into practice the ordinary ordinary aspects of communication so that the word is intelligible and understood, right? Untangling the text more than just going through the exegetical method. I think we've all heard pastors who can preach really great theologically deep sermons, and yet they don't know how to preach, right? And they got the content, but the way they're communicating it isn't indicating that they get the content. And, and maybe, maybe the audience isn't getting the content either as a result. I really appreciated actually your comment about preaching and what you was what uh, was shared with you about preaching. Interesting for me, uh, one of the most helpful preaching comments uh, was from perhaps the most unusual source was um, was my teacher of church history, Bob Godfrey, because he never really pastored in the church in the he was never a real pastor <laughs> and uh, and pastored a church in the most traditional sense but he had such a pastoral heart and had such a heart for the church and you could see that in his church history classes but i remember he once said about preaching you know one of the challenges that we have as pastors or that you paul have as a pastor is is trying to juggle you know just the wide range of duties that you have to do from counseling leadership training to to strategies of ministry and sermon prep and and one uh thing that oftentimes rather young ministers will do is is compromise the time amount of time it takes in prepping a sermon in light of everything else that needs to be done and he felt very strongly that you i can't remember what context and what classes came out but it was in the context of class that he actually really tried to redeem the quantity of time that you spend in preaching. And the reason why he said that it's not just the amount of your time in your schedule. He said it as the amount of time that you are investing in the lives of kingdom people. In other words, if you're preaching to a church of 200 people, that's 200 people you could influence who could influence 200, you know, whoever amount of circles of influence around them. Given that how much time is worth investing into a 30 minute sermon that could impact 200 or more people. And, and I, when I thought through the logic of that, I thought that makes absolutely perfect sense. And it really kind of justified for me the rationale for putting, you know, a reasonable amount of time into uh, sermon pep prepping and building that skill up so that, you know, you're not having to perhaps do like 20 hours a week, you're able to get to a point where you're able to be more efficient in your prep and, and, and things like that. But, um, you know, Bob Godfrey, uh, as we talk about influences, has had such a huge influence on me, not just in my love for church history. And, and I found that sort of a hobby horse in my free time to read biographies of significant figures in church history 
seeing the influences of uh, theology and the growth and development of theology in church history. But, you know, Godfrey is such a witty guy. He is such a uh, smart and uh, gracious man, and he exudes godliness in a way that you're not offended by what he has to say. And, uh, and I thought, I, I, I want to be able to do that. I mean, I want to be that, that charitable and yet uh, that fun and that interactive. And, you know, I, I remember uh, as we thought uh, in that same light, uh, one of the biggest influences on me, interestingly, was um, uh, a man that Dr. Red and I both studied with, uh, Doug Gropp at Catholic University, who was, you know, he was a conservative reformed Calvinist Presbyterian. And those are rare in the, in the field of uh, secular academics, but um, I remember my first semester at Catholic University, uh, I, like many of our students, will say, I'm just not a language type of a guy. And the only reason I went into a Semitics program was because of the uh, advice of Meredith Klein when I was talking about PhD programs. And he mentioned the best way to get into the field of Old Testament probably is language, cultural studies, not theology, Old Testament theology or, or things of that nature. And so I did it, even though I was a little reluctant. And I remember thinking after the first month, I'd made the biggest mistake of my life. You know, the, the study of Hebrew just wasn't coming to me, and I really wasn't enjoying the classes. And, and, I, and I came that close to just dropping out and doing something else, you know, sort of a plan B in, in life. And, and I remember at a point uh, uh, listening to Doug Gropp as he was talking about Hebrew prose and the way that Hebrew prose works in the uh, – in the book of Genesis and he was articulating it. And as he was talking about it, you could tell that he was so enthusiastic. He loved this and uh, he couldn't, you know, when you start talking about something where you're gasping for air, cause you just can't get it out fast enough. Cause you just love talking about it that much. And that's what was happening for him. And he was, he was, um, he wasn't able to spit it out fast enough. And the, and the more he talked about it, the more it fascinated me. And the more I began interested in it myself, it got to the point where after a couple, after a year of this, I loved studying Hebrew. I, 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 I found this so intriguing, so helpful in understanding scripture. It, it reminds me always as a guy who teaches Hebrew, and Scott, I don't know if you experienced this, but you know, to a certain degree, Old Testament men are always going to be mildly marginalized in this context of a seminary because, you know, we do deal with all things ancient. New Testament seems to be more associated with Paul and, and systematic theology, and, and Old Testament tends to be much more remote. Part of the challenge for us at times is not just to teach the material, but to get the students to love this material. And after studying with Grop, I realized this is exactly what I need to do. When, when the time comes and I need to teach Hebrew, I, I don't want to just teach the language. I want the students to love the language, to, to see the value of the language. And that virtue, I guess you could say, that uh, I learned that from Doug Grop. And, and he uh, uh, really has – so w whenever I can get to that point and, and I can have a student say that they find Hebrew fascinating or that they really enjoy the class – I'm grateful for it to God, but the Lord, the way the Lord shaped my understanding of that was through Doug Grubb. Definitely. One person that I think it comes to mind, especially someone that's shaped me really pastorally and relationally was actually a headmaster at my high school. His name is Brian Cox. 
And I may have told the story here in this podcast too, but I was basically a juvenile delinquent during high school years. And um, he was the headmaster of this Christian international school. And he actually, unlike the other teachers who kind of shunned me or were afraid of me or try to avoid me generally, he actually took me into his office. And at first I was coming in there because I was trying to avoid math class. So I would say, uh, you know, let's just meet Wednesday mornings because Wednesday mornings were, were math class and they would give me a hall pass. But we would meet probably about every week for about six months. And I just remember that he was unafraid of good questions that I was, well, in my mind, they were good. I'm not sure if they were good now, if I'm thinking back about them again. But he was unafraid of these uh, questions of doubt. And he was actually very relationally interested in the conversation. And he really entertained these questions. He didn't take them as threats. He simply and securely engaged in a conversation with me. And I think that that was really instrumental to how I became a Christian. And I think that it's always been carried over to me in terms of, you know, it really reminds me that anyone could be changed by God. And that if there is somebody who's difficult at a church, somebody who's difficult in a, as a student or something like that, I could remind myself that, hey, uh, don't be afraid. Don't be uh, discouraged by this, but actually engage with this person and make sure that you get to know this person because um, anyone could be reshaped by God. And I think Brian Cox's example has always been an imprint in my life. I've got those characters too early on in my life who sort of stepped in when, when a young Christian guy trying to figure things out. And even when I was like you, uh, perhaps gray, a, a bit of a teenage hoodlum, you know, those, those, those people who are willing to step in and, sort of grab me out of that and expect more in my conversation, you know, and expect more from me. And when I, you know, it's interesting, Peter, you're talking about Doug Gropp and it got me thinking too, because we both studied together with him. As you mentioned, there's something about Doug and then another, another person from my background, uh, Richard Pratt. Interestingly, they studied together and knew each other at Harvard and had become friends and went to, to the same church and yet very different types of scholars. And yet both of them, Doug Gropp and Richard Pratt, embodied for me kind of like this broad view of your field. They were great specialists in their individual areas. You know, Gropp really in, in Hebraic linguistics and Aramaic linguistics and Pratt as um, it, probably in hermeneutics, narratival hermeneutics and that kind of thing. And yet they saw a broad reach. They, they weren't afraid to, to, to take what they knew from their field and to attach and connect and show the reciprocity between their field and other fields. And that was something I always benefited from. And it just sort of you know, ignited my own imagination as I thought about my own field, you know, how to think broadly and across the board and not to, not to have these silos, as it were, in our fields, but to see how they connect right? And that was really influential on me for both of them. I'd sit and I'd talk to Grop. I remember walking on the, in New Orleans at one of the SBL gatherings right by the river there, you know, where, where, where you're walking below the water level of the river and just chatting about, you know, critical theories of Old Testament and sort of how an evangelical ought to think about them. And just, just sort of being just having my imagination ignited. I don't know how to say it otherwise, just being so exhilarated by the conversation, you know, and I wanted to try to be able to do that with my students too. 
That reminds me, actually, both of your stories, Scott and Peter, remind me of uh, academic influence in my own life, Fern Poitras, who, you know, like like you were saying, Scott, you know, is very much a generalist. You know, there's just so much that he's an expert in, and he loves to integrate all of that material together. And he does it in in this way that is, in, he, you can just tell that he is intoxicatingly excited about it. Uh, and he he does it in this this very breathless almost kind of way. I remember sitting in an uh, hermeneutic class in my PhD with him, and I don't even remember what I think the class was tag mimics or something. It was a, it was like an advanced hermeneutics class, and he's sitting there. He's talking about tag mimics and biblical theology and the coherence of scripture in Christ, and he goes into this discussion of. Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. No, it wasn't Snow White. It was um, it was the other Disney movie. The other one. The other one. The one other Disney movie. The first one. It was the uh, uh, Sleeping Beauty. It was Sleeping Beauty. Steamboat Willie. <laughs> no, he he goes into he goes into like ten minute discussion of Sleeping Beauty and how the various images throughout history are integrated into that with this. Christological thematization and the dragon, and he just gets so excited about it, and it's intoxicating. And you get excited about it as a student because because it's interesting, but also because they are excited and are trying to pass along their excitement to you. And yeah. those two, that combination of things, the the general kind of knowledge about the world and not just his topic, but then how he could bring that in that into these interrelationships and express it in an exciting way was extremely helpful. My love for systematic theology actually came exactly that way. There was a time early in my seminary years where I remember, you know, one of the earliest people that I was reading was Voss, and, and I found him so incredibly insightful and so radically different than everything that I had heard uh, in church before. And as I was getting more into Bavos and biblical theology, in hindsight now, I could realize that I was really imbalanced in my thinking, that systematic theology became kind of dull and static and, and unexciting in light of the progressive movement of the history of redemption and the history of revelation. And, and it, it wasn't a—in hindsight, again, now I realize this is not a good way of thinking. And, and I remember the person who, who really— grounded me and and I guess you could say kind of brought me back to a more balanced way of thinking was my teacher of systematic theology, Bob Strimple, because Strimple was so precise and he loved the classical systematic forms of Calvinism. Hearing Strimple teach about the proper precise distinctions in systematic theology, uh, you know, justification and its grounds and its nature and its instrumentality was just so incredibly insightful and helpful and grounded so biblically. And, and you know, those who, and I don't think I'm being disrespectful, those who study with Bob Strimple will realize he's not the most um, enthused of lecturers, but, but when he talked about these things, you could tell how much he loved this and how much of an influence. There was a moment I remember in his classes where he was talking about these, these doctrines of grace, and he just had to stop and pause. And he said, you know what, we, we can't continue. We really need to just pause and worship for a moment. And he sort of led the class for a five-minute service. And then he kind of picked up back again. And, 
and that still stays with me. Uh, you know, his his love for 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 systematic theology. You know, his influences of, of John Murray on him that is now influencing us, and and how that really began to balance my thinking on the relationship of biblical theology and uh, and systematic theology. Paul, when I look back at seminary. For instance, um, I can remember Dr. Gaffin. Here's this guy who's just so precise in his language. I mean, those of you that went to Westminster will remember this. Before he made any point, he had like literally seven to ten qualifications, you know, before he could say any one thing. But then I had lunch with him, I think once or twice during seminary, and the thing that struck me about him was here's this guy, he's a huge figure in the reform world. But when you actually speak with him, the thing that really stuck out was he does not take himself seriously. And at the same time, you can tell he takes God and the Bible so seriously. And you see that kind of stuff you can't fake. You know, you can't there's a kind of humility and confidence to him that to this day it's just shaped me. I'm not sure exactly how, but so as I listen to people's responses, I think that um, I'm better understanding. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff I would have said was very formative for me, even during seminary. For me, a lot of times it was watching how people interacted with students or me. You know, I can think of, you know, one professor helping me through a personal relationship issue that I had and we chatted in the hallway and he wouldn't remember it today, but it really did kind of change the way I thought about dealing with difficult personal relationships, you know, and it's, it's not that this is where most of the spiritual formation in my life took place, but there was this kind of unique thing that happened. You know, we try to talk about it with our students at RTS. There's a unique thing happening at seminary. It's a unique context that isn't like anywhere else. And it's not that it's better or that it's worse, but one thing that's good about it, one, one of the aspects of, about it that it's, that's so significant is that you're gathered together with a bunch of people who are thinking in this kind of almost artificial community kind of way, right? Because it almost looks like a monastery or something that had to be sort of forcibly put together. But they're all thinking deliberately about applying God's will in certain, or God's word rather, in certain aspects of life, systematics, biblical theology, redemptive history, preaching. And it's one of the few places in the world where you're having these kinds of conversations in kind of like a high octane way, I guess. You know what I mean? It's not that it's a perfect reflection of human life. We all know that that's not true, <laughs> right? But it is, it is a unique thing. It's, it's, it's the guild. It's like when the electricians get together and they don't have to explain what they mean by this kind of wire and this kind of resistor and this, cause everybody's on the same page. Right. And, and a different kind of conversation can happen in that situation. Yeah. And, and for me, it was often seeing these teachers interact there, even in ways that they probably didn't know were formative or were pedagogical and watching them behave and respond that helped me think through what I was doing when I was studying God's word and teaching it. People talk about it's not so much being taught, but caught. And I know that's a, that's a cliche anywhere from youth ministry to uh, business leadership <laughs> retreats, you know, but there is something to that. There's the, there's the, uh, there's sort of the cognitive deliberate teaching. And then there is the, the modeling of certain lifestyle and, 
it's hard to know which one's more important. I, I hesitate to say one's better, more important than the other, but I do think they are complementary and you can't learn without both being a part of your learning process. You have to see both the modeling and you have to have the content. Yeah, as we're talking, Scott, you know, the other thing that comes to my mind, which, you know, it's become such a part of me that I'm not aware of it until we have this kind of conversation about influences and so forth. But you know, I attended Westminster, uh, Philadelphia, and when I look back, there are a lot of rich things I did learn, but there's one thing that across the board, at least everyone in theology and history would underscore this, although I would say it's probably true for biblical studies as well. Across the board, there's repeated theme of our disposition towards the word of God, right? And you know that it is ontologically fundamentally different. And so we can't approach it the way we approach any other text. And see, that sounds like a, a passing theological comment in one sense, but when I did my uh, PhD at Catholic, as you know, you and Peter did as well, I think it did shape the way I did, um, you know, like I struggled with difficult questions. And so, like, for instance, if there was something in the Bible I didn't understand, my default was not to go and say, well, this must be a contradiction. You know, if anything, I think because I had that default that this is the word of God, it made me wrestle with issues differently. I don't know if you guys can relate to that, but when I look back at people in biblical studies, I think often they go, if I can use the language, astray, because they never settled what their dynamic or their disposition towards the Bible would be. Yeah, I think that's right. And they, I, I think that's actually the value, part of the value of a Reformed epistemology without going off in a totally different field. But I noticed that friends of mine who went on to do PhDs with maybe more of a sort of rationalist epistemology toward the scripture and not as much of a reformed epistemology towards scripture, uh, recognizing it as God's revelation, as God's word. People who went off and did their PhDs without having thought through that were at a disadvantage. And I think often stumbled and struggled deeply with their studies because they were still coming at it with a kind of, you know, rationalist, hey, I'm just following the facts, ma'am, kind of epistemology, which, you know, I think is, uh, is, is going is to basically ultimately lead you to sort of some kind of enlightenment <laughs> autonomy that's unhealthy and is not useful when studying scripture, right? When the lordship of Christ is yeah. in view, lordship of your, own, of your own experience. That was something I really... Yeah appreciated of, uh, well, you know, I've been very outspoken about my admiration for Meredith Klein on so many different levels. And this is one area where he was entrenched in the uh, critical school of thought, but never once compromised to it. And, and, you know, and part of that, I think is because he had such a grounding on, on theology, on systematic theology, on the word of God. And he was such a precise exegete. In many ways, his strength was exegesis. Uh, real micro level exegesis and and then seeing that in the context of the broad panoramic picture of the history of salvation, but even though that he was completely inundated uh, in that in a uh, secular academic and i don 't mean secular in a negative way, I just mean non church based uh, academic setting, he yeah. never compromised his views on the Word of God 
in fact, he was militant. And that may have been what sort of forged him as, uh, as some, to becoming so militant is that he came out of that environment and stayed uh, so grounded in his orthodoxy. It just, in many ways, it really strengthened that position. And, and it really comes across in, in, in his glasses, the way that he will talk and interact, not just with critical schools, but granted, you know, with others who disagree with him, the same kind of force may come across. But you could see, and I remember thinking, that this, is, this is exactly the type of thing that I need to see, because as, as you said, Scott, you know, men and women, people who go into biblical studies, we dabble in oftentimes of theological shades of gray. It's not always real clear, precise uh, theology that we're dealing with. So it's easy for us to, for people in our field to kind of take theological tangents. And so to be grounded in a systematic construct is such a uh, important thing for us to have in our background. And so. Yeah. Well, unlike you, Peter, I can't claim Meredith Klein as a personal influence because we never met, but um, I did spend a lot of time in seminary gathering his works together, particularly as I really felt more drawn to Old Testament studies. And I would say as, as an Old Testament scholar, he's probably one of the most influential, I mean, clearly the most influential 20th century evangelical reformed Old Testament scholar. And probably for me also personally, one of the most influential on, on many of these issues, taking the word of God seriously as God's word. Right. And I, that, that even can sound redundant and like a tautology, but it's, it's an articulation of the self-attestation of scripture that changes the way you do everything. We try to talk about this yeah. in class a little bit too. You have to remember when you're going yeah. into God's word, you're not just sitting down with this ancient manuscript or this book, you're going into the presence of the King and that changes the way you approach the text. Right. So Meredith Klein, for me, has been super influential. Okay, so let's move on to talking more about those individuals who theologically influence you. Maybe your method and how you do theology or some commitment that inform the way that you think about the study and the teaching of Scripture. Uh, I want to move now more to these kind of theological categories, theological influences. We've already talked about a few, talking about Doug Groff and Meredith Klein and others. So let me let me push us now in that direction. Yeah, I think one of the most significant theological and formative influences in my life, at least academically, is of course my own doctoral supervisor, James Eglinton at the University of Edinburgh. I think what I learned most from him was this confidence, this calm and quiet confidence in the fact that if you just stay with the formative features of Christianity, you can actually draw out all sorts of philosophical and academic implications from it. I remember the first one of the first essays that I've read from James was this essay on multilingualism, this idea that multilingualism is actually not a curse, but rather a gift. And he was talking about, therefore, a philosophy of language and drawing sources from the Bible, sources from his own neo-Calvinistic tradition to bring to bear on this linguistic question is the fact that there are many languages in the world today. Is that a blessing or a curse? And if it is a blessing, why is it a blessing? What kind of constructive powers can we see from the fact that there's actually multiple languages in the world today? And that to me was a model of doing a scholarship of how we should be doing theology, I think, instead of being preoccupied perhaps with um, answering criticisms to Christianity or being preoccupied with polemical concerns per se, just staying on the constructive side of things 
that's probably how, how we should, I, I'm thinking about it now, the, the constructive side of things uh, that could actually show and perform the attractiveness of the idea that you're you're trying to pursue, right? So I think there are generally probably two ways, right? Normally that people want to generate interest in your idea. One is by polemically attacking all the other alternatives or the other is simply performing the, the beauty of the idea itself. And I think that's what I learned from his scholarship and also uh, from neo-Calvinism in general, this Kuyperian tradition to show that Christianity has generative resources to be deployed in so many areas of life. And the way to just show this is not to necessarily polemicize against people who critique that idea that Christianity has implications for all areas of life, but simply to perform it, just get on with it, uh, not just clear your throat, but do it, right? And I think uh, not only beyond James, you know, the, the, the neo-Calvinist scholars that are, are working in this field now are trying to do exactly that. Uh, I could also mention, of course, George Herring's work uh, that showed me clearly how neo-Calvinism tries to stay within the orthodoxy that they've stood on, but at the same time engage in modern ideas. There's this sanguine attitude that neo-Calvinists have towards modern philosophy, towards modern culture, that grace is only uh, against sin and not against nature or culture as such. So instead of a kind of suspicion against culture and the world, there's this idea that if you stand on Christian principles, you can encounter the world fruitfully and you don't have to be afraid of encountering culture fruitfully. So I, I definitely want to name James Eglinton and George Herring as formative influences on me. That's awesome to hear the the way sort of their tone of theological study influenced you. I like to think, and as I just look around at this podcast and everybody's participating in it, I, hope, I like to think that we're doing something like that too. And I like the way you put that, that idea of performing sort of theological inquiry and not just getting attention through antithesis, right? Sometimes, sometimes it's even made up antithesis, right, that we see out there today. I wish we saw more of that performative of logical inquiry. Reminds me of something uh, I heard Tim Keller once say that, that so much of apologetics is the approach that so many of us take to like apologetics and to defending the faith and the culture war is, is trying to show that Christianity is true. And that's not a bad thing, of course, but a better approach and the more persuasive approach is to show people that it's beautiful, that it's, that it's worth uh, it's attractive and it's worth participating in. I, I, I've been influenced by that kind of positive, constructive approach too. And it's a good thing to strive for. And especially in a culture that's lost a common kind of epistemology and natural theology, et cetera, that, that can be more persuasive. Yeah, I remember in a particular doctoral level seminar with Nick Adams, who's actually at the University of Birmingham now. He was teaching a course on Hegel. And a question that he posed to his students always struck a chord with me. Anytime the students asked a question or proposed a constructive proposal in terms of reading Hegel in a particular direction or whatever, he would oftentimes pause and ask, is that a generative question or not? If it's a question or an inquiry that could stifle a conversation, he would say that that's just not a fruitful reading of Hegel or this is not a fruitful line of inquiry. And it's best if you can generate a question that can create more inquiries that could invite more people to participate the better it is. And I think that that's incredibly attractive too. So Gray, you know, when, when you encounter believers, particularly in like the reform tradition that perhaps don't, 
practice this. How have you worked out those conversations or engagements? Yeah, I definitely don't want to generalize to all reform people in, in a blanket way because I don't think it's possible. Because uh, I do think, for example, for my own denomination, the International Presbyterian Church, I do think that their culture and ethos is very different than perhaps other denominational manifestations of Presbyterianism. But I do think that perhaps because of reform theology's commitment to confessionalism, there is this gravitational pull towards a kind of golden age view of theology, where uh, perhaps it's the 17th century or the magisterial Refor reformation, right? The 16th century, that's where the golden age happened. That's where, you know, Calvin's Geneva is just the greatest thing or the Westminster standards is the greatest thing. I'm not saying that they're not great. Of course they're great. Uh, we love the Westminster standards and we love what Calvin was doing. Uh, whatever uh, the pinnacle of the golden age might be just to some people's minds, right? We definitely want to stand on those things. But I do think that what the neo-Calvinist tradition brings is this idea that theology can have a voice in every age and there is no golden age. And because of the reality of common grace and sin, every age will manifest wrongs and right things together, right? And so, you know, if you think about, for example, the 17th century, there are many things that we would find, many practices that we find quite objectionable today in terms of the public space, perhaps, right? And so not everything in the Enlightenment era and not everything in the modern age is actually uh, bad. And I think what Bavang and Kyber does is trying to bring forth the fact that Christianity can still speak in the modern world. Well, if we're talking uh, theological influences, one of the first for me in a in in my seminary days, actually back in my MDiv days, more than PhD, was was uh, Dr. Richard Gaffin. I went to Westminster not expecting, not because Gaffin was there, but um, but like many, found found his work to be incredibly helpful for understanding scripture. I. Uh, there were a lot of unanswered questions about the relationship between the Testament, systematic theology, biblical theology, um, doing good confessional work while at the same time appropriating the insights of, of critical scholarship, all of, all of those kinds of things. And for me, at least, uh, the work that Gaffin did in that area was incredibly helpful. He, he especially in the area of kind of wrestling through issues of continuity and discontinuity between the testaments. I, I went into to seminary thinking I was going to do a PhD in apologetics and systematic theology. Gray, systematic theology was my first love, but uh, discovering that, that the kinds of answers that biblical theology could provide, that ended up being kind of where I, I went and where I focused. And then at the PhD level, um, I already mentioned Vern Poitras. Poitras was really helpful for me in terms of kind of seeing the symphony of theology, the, the variety of perspectives, uh, that multi-perspectival kind of thing, and being therefore creative and constructive. Gray, to your point, I, I, I felt like his approach allowed me to see the insights and the beauty of different perspectives on theological study and, and, and how that works. Um, and then I had also my, my advisor at the time was uh, Dan McCartney, uh, who's, now, who's now retired, but I, I chose Dan as my advisor because I knew I was doing historical research in Hebrews and I knew he would, he would press me to be precise and accurate 
in, in, in scholarship and uh, not just to win the argument um, or to play the game, but to do so with integrity historically uh, in particular. And that also has been, uh, that is a weakness of mine and was appreciative of his attention to detail in overcoming that that weakness. Um, it's not about the rhetorical flourish, it's about using the data well and, and using it appropriately. It's never too late, Tommy, to go back to systematic theology. <laughs> I still dabble, I dabble, I dabble. That's funny, one of my, one of my first inklings towards PhD was when I was an undergrad, you know, studying under a uh, an ethics professor named Hans Tiefel, and we used to notice note that if you changed the order of one of the you know, the letters, it was uh, the name Tiefel becomes Tiefel, it means devil. Uh, he taught a class called Death. At William and Mary was an excellent professor, and, uh, and and for that reason, I wanted to study philosophy of religion. That was going to be my that was going to be my first study, and he's the one who told me this is in the early nineties. He said in his, I won't try to approximate his German accent, but he said, um, well, if you want to go into religion, the pattern is full right now and none of us are retiring anytime soon. <laughs> so in, in our, future, our future discussion of people's advice when you're thinking about PhDs, um, that would be the first advice that I got. And actually, that's one of the reasons, thank God, that I went into other fields um, before going back into studies. I had a similar conversation with uh, Dick Gaffin at, uh, in, in Philly. I asked him, should I do New Testament or systematics? And because he, he, he skirts the line, right? He sits right, yeah. on, the, right on the fence there. Um, and he said, you can do everything from the New Testament. You can do anything you want. <laughs> so the rest is, sorry, Gray. Sorry, Old Testament guys. I'm looking at Peter's face. He's gone ashen. <laughs> well, as I have said, we, Scott, you and I, we are constantly fighting for the integrity of our own discipline. That's true. That's we are true. not outside of the semantics department. We're just not, we're just not love. Where's the love, man? <laughs> I don't have a lot of regrets in life, praise God. But the one I do have actually is that I never had a chance to study with Dick Gaffin. Um, and there were times after I graduated from seminary that I really thought, man, you know, I, I kind of want to do more work in the New Testament because I, I had been so influenced by great men of the Old Testament. And uh, my New Testament study was, was rather, uh, it just felt a little weak. And, and I contemplated maybe doing something at Westminster Philly uh, in New Testament while, um, uh, while Gaffin was there. I, the, the best the influence of that I now have of Gaffin is really through people like yourself and our beloved Howard Griffith. As you know, he was very influenced by, uh, by Dick Gaffin. And, um, and thankfully now Gaffin, Dr. Gaffin is a member of my presbytery here in the Mid-Atlantic. So now I have ample opportunities to kind of interact with him privately on personal matters as well as theological. But uh, uh, that, that is uh, one of the things I try to do is just grab as much Gaffin stuff as I can get lectures, recordings, books, and and just be um, more appreciative of, of what uh, I, I feel to a certain extent still I missed out a little bit on. Yeah, Gaffin is just a godly man. And I think not just as a professor, but also just as a example. He was one of the elders at uh, the church that I was going to when I was a, in Philadelphia doing my seminary years. 
And uh, I remember he approached me one day because he was the elder assigned to me. And he says, are you going to be okay with this? That, that I am assigned to you? And I was like, of course I'm going to be okay with this. How can I not be okay with this? And then I get a text from him a couple of days later. He says, where should we do our first eldership meeting? And I said, okay, where can I suggest, you know, Starbucks? I don't know where can I, can I go with Dr. Gaffin? And he says, you know what? McDonald's sounds good. And we had our first meeting over chicken McNuggets in McDonald's in Ambler, Pennsylvania. A remarkable memory there. And uh, I'm not sure he ate many chicken McNuggets, but uh, <laughs> the chicken McNuggets were not the highlight of that conversation. I have to share my Gavin story. My last year at Western Star, I, I also approached Dr. Gavin because I was going to do systematics. And he advised me to do New Testament. And uh, he, he did encourage me to study New Testament elsewhere. So I said, okay. But I asked him, what should I eventually explore in systematics? And he said to me, I want you to go finish your New Testament PhD. And then I want you to do a lot of exegesis. So write at least one commentary or something along those lines. And after you've done that, then we can talk. And so I did exactly that. About 10 years after that meeting, so five years after my PhD, I you know, did everything he asked. And I was waiting for this enlightening, like, you know, Kung Fu monk moment. And I met Dr. Gaffin. I said, Dr. Gaffin, I did exactly what you said. I did a New Testament PhD. I've been working on exegesis. And you told me to come back and uh, inquire what I should study next. And he said to me, did I say that? I'm so sorry. <laughs> so, <laughs> he has no recollection of this conversation. And I had orchestrated my life around this conversation. <laughs> and like I, I forget how we ended the conversation. He said something like, well, I don't know. Like, there's a lot of interesting theological stuff in John's gospel. And, um, and then we just had a great lunch just talking about anything and everything. So I, but I love the man. He, he has been so formative and doing careful exegesis and not just saying, but really embodying why you cannot do exegesis well without being self-aware of your uh, theological commitments and um, even integrating biblical theology into your exegesis. So Gaffin has been so formative. And, and, and theology for the, for the sake of the church. I, I guess that was also the, the, my big takeaway from him is, you know, I, I think some people listening in might not, not know uh, Gaffin as well because he's, he's, there's not as, he doesn't have a wealth of publications out there except through, you know, Peter, I think you could testify to this, except in the, the minutes of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, you'll find him all over the place because in uh, a big way, he used his theological acumen in service for, to, to his local body, to, to his church to, and denomination. It's funny about Dick Gaffin, that, that story about Dick Gaffin reminds me too of about four different conversations I've had with students where they've come back years later and said, you know, the, really the turning point was when you said this. And I'm thinking, really? I don't remember saying that. And uh, it reminds me of the import. And thank God for his providence that, um, that, that he protects us in the advice that we give. And sometimes we give maybe perhaps better advice than we meant to. 
I guess if we talk about uh, theological influences, I, I guess in, in my general Christian life, I've had two big influences in, in, the, in the area of pastoral ministry. Pastor Alan Harris in the OPC, he single-handedly embodied to me what, what a, a pastor should look like. In terms of theology, for me, it had to have been Meredith G. Klein. And the way that you brothers talk about uh, Dr. Richard Gaffin and, and thus, Tommy, you know, you going into New Testament to a large extent, Paul, yourself as well, you know, that is what Dr. Klein was for me in going into the Old Testament. I, I went into seminary thinking that I wanted to be a pastor. I actually thought I, I was going to be a youth pastor my whole life. I find that so ironic now. And it was uh, Dr. Klein's class on the Pentateuch that was just incredible. I mean, he, he introduced us to Voss. He introduced me to biblical theology as a theological method. Never heard of it before. Never really saw it before. And I kept thinking, this just simply cannot be right. Uh, where, where is the doctrine of election? You know, where is the doctrine of justification? There's, he's not talking about these things. <laughs> And uh, when he introduced to me the whole idea of the progression of, the, of um, special revelation and how that worked, it was like a Copernican revolution for me. And after taking not even the entirety, just half of uh, his class and just seeing the way that he would start in, in Genesis and end up in the book of Revelation, I, I found that so insightful, so sound. Uh, you know, he, he, the word he uses is sort of architectural, you know, perspective, uh, sort of structures of the history of salvation. And uh, the way that he did, did that, at that point, I, I knew this, this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, actually. Um, I, 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 want to, I want to study the word of God. He sort of brought in a love for the word of God in a way that I never had before. And I knew that the reason at that point I had made the conscious decision, I wanted to pursue a PhD, not necessarily to, um, to, to teach Oh, excuse me, or to or to publish or anything like that. I, I wanted to do a PhD because I just wanted to study this more. And so really he he inspired me and, and I think many other men of my generation who studied with him ended up going into the Old Testament by and large because of his uh, influences. So question for you, Peter, about, about Klein. Because one of the things, I, I uh, only know him through through his writing. And one of the things that is, Kind of impressive about his writing is just how precise he is. I mean, the number of times he uses hyphens, that's, that's also impressive, but, but the precision of his just theological, his biblical theological kind of approach. Is, is that how he was in the classroom? Did he, did he teach like that? He did. In fact, uh, uh, you know, we, we, all of us are, are very influenced by our teachers and at least the ones that are the most um, that we are uh, most influenced by. And, and I find myself trying to do the same thing. For example, the way that he structured his classes, and, and I think he did this consciously, is he did one of either two things. He was either looking at the broad panoramic uh, sweep of the history of salvation, sort of the big picture, or he spent hours dedicated to the study of one particular passage, a real fine, precise exegesis. And, and a lot of the precision I think that you're talking about is, is those aspects there where in many ways his class on the prophets was more or less a, a study of key prophetic text in 
very precise uh, detail and showing how each text is contributing to the broader, grander uh, structure or, or architectural structure of the um, of the of the history of salvation. So it's it, it really was incredible the way that he would be so narrow and so precise and so detailed, and then from there he extrapolates a picture of the larger structure of the history of salvation and the way that God is working in our lives. And, and um, it, it just was, uh, you know, beautiful, as we talked about earlier. Uh, it really was just a spellbinding, the way that he was able to do that. You know, his command of Hebrew was just amazing. And the way that he was able to, um, and his, not just of the language, but, but the Hebrew Bible, and so he, he knew the Hebrew Bible so incredibly well. And when you read his material, you could see how he was able to tie in, you know, a Hebrew word here in Genesis and how that is being used or in that same Hebrew word and how it's being commented on by Isaiah or Zechariah. And, you know, that type of not just word study, but but and he never used this term, but I think it'd be what we would now refer to as sort of an intertextual type of connection and and. And you see that, and it just, it humbled you as a student, his knowledge of scripture, and it inspired you at the same time that you want to learn it that well. You know, I mentioned already a few people like Gaffin, John Frame, but I do want to make mention of my PhD professors, especially John Paul Heil and Frank Matera. I think uh, Matera, he taught me so much, as well as John Paul Heil, but they taught me something I've been thinking about over the past few years. They gave me this advice, which has helped me, I guess, from a perspective of always learning. Uh, and this was their advice. They said, just publish, publish a lot. And in one very personal conversation, they said, you need to be able to publish a lot. And then every now and then look at what you published five years ago, wins and pain as you look at it and then just move on uh, because they said that you learn actually the most by writing and by trying to systematize your uh, thoughts and so forth. And, you know, they were saying that uh, so often uh, we're afraid of what the academic community may say, or um, we're just, I, I don't know, or we want it to be perfect, but every time you work on your manuscript or article, you realize it could be better and better. And they, so they said, you have to set a definite timeline and just release it. And wh whatever comes, comes, but eventually you'll find your rhythm. And then one day you might actually produce something that's decent, but you won't even know by that point. And when I look back at that advice, it was very formative because they were not saying publish for the sake of publishing. You know, um, if you know both men, they're, they're actually very humble men, in my opinion. They're very gracious. Um, I think they love Jesus. Um, and, uh, but that advice was so great. And um, the other thing that Gray sort of touched on this when he shared, but what I was very impressed by Matera and Heil, who are, I think, both Catholic, is the way they were able to engage other traditions so well. And one of the things that really struck me about Matera especially was he would always try to articulate uh, where people were coming from in such a way where the um, author being represented would feel like Matera was doing justice 
and really understood him on a deep level. And so when I look back at um, my experience, I think those two men were very formative in terms of how I approach um, academia. And uh, all that is to say, I think when I look back, they basically said to me in not so many words, don't take yourself that seriously. You're probably not going to change the landscape. You might make a minor scratch, but what's important is that you learn by writing a lot and that you try to pass on what you learn so that the next generation can build off of that. And so when I look back, I'm very thankful for those two men who were very practical, actually, in terms of how to continually learn after the doctorate program. So what was the first thing you wrote after your PhD, Paul? How did you put that into practice? I'm all about killing like 10 birds with one stone. So I was doing a Bible study on Romans. And during that time, I had helped Frank Matera finish his commentary on Romans. And uh, I, do, I should share this. When, during my first year of my PhD program, I was assigned to Frank Matera as his research assistant. And he showed me this one-page Word document and said, by the time you graduate in about five, six years, this will become a commentary on Romans. And uh, Paideia published his uh, commentary. So during that time, I decided to do a Romans Bible study at my church. And what I was doing for Matera was I was reviewing his chapters, but he wanted me to summarize his chapters to make sure I understood them. And so I already had these summaries. And so basically I took those summaries and um, made it into a tiny book. Uh, and uh, when I, I hardly ever read it unless uh, one of my students points out another error in the book. <laughs> so that's, but uh, you know, that was my first book. And uh, I think a lot of you guys can relate to this. I never listen to any of the sermons I preach because I can't stand like my voice and I never read anything I publish. But um, when I look back, again, that advice, just publish and don't worry too much about like what people say. Just do the best you can. Learn one thing and just keep doing it. That, that's been gold for me. And uh, yeah, every now and then, it, it is funny. Um, I'll read a review and usually they are scathing. I, I think rightly so. But even when you look at the reviews, you learn a lot about how to grow. And so without that interaction, without that critical feedback, you don't learn, you don't change. And so, so Frank Matera and John Paul Heil. It's interesting, you know, as I hear everybody talking, we've got, we've all had these influences that I think we would point to being influences of sort of a humility and a, and a humanness in our approach to academics. Ray, what you were saying about James Eglinton and kind of positive performative method and Dick Gaffin and, and, you, Paul, what you're saying about this sort of humility and, 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 and circumspect view of scholarship, I think we all know and we've all interacted with the pettiness of academia, and it's, it's definitely there. And I, I remember somebody telling me early on, you know, be careful with academics because they're basically paid and their whole livelihood is about them being right. And so that's a hard group of people to hang out with, people who are who have this incredible incentive to always be the right person, you know, the, the one who's right in the room. And while there's definitely, a, you know, a huge amount of pettiness and selfishness and pride and arrogance, and we've all seen it, particularly people who put a lot of trust in their mental faculties because they've got a lot of mental faculties, right? 
it's interesting to me how influenced we've all been by the people who are humble, the people who are a little more circumspect, who maybe have learned, and I think this is kind of the, the ironic aside to an honest, healthy academic life, is that you learn how much you don't know. You know, as, as, as human knowledge grows, we realize how much we don't know about the universe, not how much we have control of the universe. And I like that. I, I like that that's been our influence. And I hope that that's the influence that we have too on our students and, uh, and, and the folks who are coming through our doors at RTS. And I, and I like to think that we do as I look at the, the evaluations and, and perhaps even more importantly, as I, as I hear students reflecting sort of casually on their time at RTS, I think we get to communicate that here. And I, and I hope we can continue to nurture that sense as well of humbly pursuing God's word and applying it for the face of God, right? And that, that should keep us in the right and proper perspective as we're continuing these studies. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I always enjoy hearing from you all about your influences and how professors and the scholars in your life have uh, really shaped you as a scholar. And I look forward to discussing this further, even as we're having this conversation. I realize there's a lot more that could be said, and there's a whole lot um, more in terms of just the different voices, the different individuals who have shaped us, not only in our sense of pastoral call, but our sense of academic call to the seminary. I do want to apologize to the audience. Uh, I know that there are some audio issues throughout this recording, um, particularly with my mic, and I think that I've found a solution to it, so we hope to have that resolved in the future. But it's been great to be with you all this week, and I look forward to being with you again in the weeks to come. Take care. Should we say something about RTS being the most humble, the most meek of all of the... There's never been a <laughs> seminary like RTS. Until today. Until today. Uh, you guys. We're ignoring you, Greg. Just get used to it. <laughs> That's fair, Peter. I understand. Not humble enough. <laughs> That's, That's right. You're not humble enough. I'm the new guy, okay. We'll be your humbleizers, Gray. We'll teach you humility. Time to get more humble. Amen. Put a cougar in my class, please. <laughs>